The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode are that of the guest and host and do not necessarily reflect the values of sponsors or other associated organizations. This is the Parental Compass by Family Education and Support Services. I'm Bobby Williams. Welcome to the show. And a secondary welcome to all of our subscribers. Please, please hit subscribe and you'll get notified each week when we drop the next episode. More and more, we're thinking about how health isn't just our physical bodies, it's our mental health. Still, with mental health challenges, there's a lot of stigma. Today, we are speaking with Eliana Stockwell Fervor from NAMI. You may have heard of NAMI. They are the largest grassroots mental health organization. Eliana goes to schools to give presentations to teenagers about her own mental health challenges growing up and how you can take care of yourself and look out for others. You can learn more about the Stop the Silence presentation by going to namitm.org. It's important work. It was a great conversation. Let's check it out. It seems like it's just coming up more in the collective consciousness of everyone. Where do you think that stigma comes from? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Someone could probably spend their whole career studying that. Um, that's such an interesting question. There's probably a fascinating history about it, but I think in general, right now at least, people want everything to be okay, which makes sense. We want everything to be okay and fine and happy. And I think parents especially and loved ones of people who have mental health conditions want everything to be okay because they love their loved ones. So I think that's part of it is that intrapersonally, people don't want to talk about it because A, they don't want to worry their loved ones. Um, and then loved ones might not want to hear about it because they don't want to hear that their loved ones are suffering. So that's my intrapersonal answer, although there are cultural reasons why it's not okay to talk about in a lot of other ways. Yeah, well, I think the idea of I don't want to burden people, that makes sense. Yeah. It makes me think about how I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, and a lot of the way that I thought about things was the more personal something is, the more private it is. But that doesn't lead to reaching out or getting support or anything like that. Uh, what were some of your early experiences with mental health challenges? Yeah, I was going to say when you asked that first question, like, I love answering questions about mental health and especially about youth and mental health. And I'm only an expert on my own experience. So I'm glad that you brought up your lived experience. Um, so when I was younger, I really think I've had an anxiety disorder for my whole life. I think I was kind of born with it. Um, I had a really great childhood in lots of ways, but I was anxious about everything. And when I was, I remember having symptoms of panic attacks and having panic attacks and a lot of anxiety, even as young as six or seven. Um, and I didn't know how to talk about it. I'm just on that subject of talking about it to other folks. I didn't know what was happening. It was too confusing for me to be able yeah. to. Or even have language around it. Cause yeah. it's sort of like you learn about mental health and what it looks like. So. 
Totally. Yeah. And I think part of me thought it was normal because I had nothing to compare it to really, but I did know that it was um, too much. Like I remember even at six and seven being like, this is not, um, this is not right. Yeah. Hmm. So I did have that sense. So what happened as you got older then? You started young, having challenges. Yeah. What were your teenage years like? Oh, they were beautiful. <laughs> my, my teenage years. Um, so I was diagnosed with ADD. And that's what they used to call it back then. Now I think the diagnosis is just ADHD. But I was a girl, so I was diagnosed with ADD because I wasn't hyperactive. Mm -hmm. And I was diagnosed with um, depression when I was 11. And I do remember having a lot of those symptoms of depression. Um, I had a friend who I really loved who kind of dumped me. And um, I was really sad about that um, and about lots of things. So I remember crying a lot, even at school. Um, this was fifth grade, just to give people an idea of that grade number. And um, I didn't care about the depression diagnosis, but I really cared about the ADD diagnosis. I thought it meant I was stupid and annoying and would never be normal. Um, so going into high school, um, I think I, I really developed a lot of perfectionistic tendencies because I wanted to prove to everyone that there was nothing wrong with me. Yeah. I had 80 or, you know, have ADHD too. And we've been doing some episodes about ADHD. So it's got me thinking about it. And I think one of the challenges I had being young, it's like school was very difficult. And so it was frustrating. And I just got this sense like, okay, I'm just dumb. Mm -hmm. And then that affects how you feel about yourself. And those are like early developmental times. And so it's like the... ADHD feeds into the depression or it can. Absolutely. They can go hand in hand. And I have a couple other diagnoses also, and they all go hand in hand in different ways. And you're absolutely right about that important developmental age and early adolescence, like, you know, starting at 10, 11, depending on when folks start their adolescence, where you're really finding out who you are and trying to develop your personality and your identity outside of your core family. And so, yeah, it was a super devastating time to get that diagnosis and to feel like it meant there was something wrong with me. So I, I wonder, of course, I wonder how things might've gone if I didn't get that diagnosis then. Um, but maybe I would have been perfectionistic and anxious in high school anyway, who knows? Yeah. Well, so there's a lot of young people going through similar circumstances right now. I think a challenge a lot of parents have is, okay, is this just being a teenager and being moody? Or is this really a mental health challenge? Absolutely. There's a super fine line there. And um, I've listened to lots of experts talking about this and read about it. And um really the most helpful diagnostic criteria is, is it persistent and is it relentless and is it intense? So, you know, I've heard folks talk about um, trying to navigate that line because teenagers are moody and they have natural, totally developmentally appropriate mood swings and um, struggles and being um, oppositional. That's totally yeah. healthy. Um, I, if it, it lasts over two weeks and it is relentless and intense, so, that's 
what, we go what does intense and relentless look like though? <laughs> for me, for me. Um, so I, I wasn't a teenager who acted out. Um, I was a teenager who, who was super anxious and perfectionistic about getting all my work done. So for example, um, I had this textbook that was really boring. It was a U.S. history textbook. U.S. history is awesome, but the textbook was boring. And I remember feeling like every moment that I wasn't reading that textbook in high school, if I was like resting or trying to eat uh, or something else than reading that textbook, I was failing somehow. Um, so it, that's one example. Um, what about of, just for parents out there? Like how can they tell the difference between maybe my child is just moody versus this is intense and relentless? Yeah, well, I mean, with my textbook example, like, I think my parents did have a pretty good eye on me and noticed that I was complaining about stress and talking about stress a lot, um, doing and redoing my homework a lot. I think for parents, of course, checking in with your kid and being attuned to them and keeping an eye on them um, to see what relentless looks like for them, because each kid is going to be different. Um, because for me, like I said, it wasn't acting out or like sneaking out or any of those traditional yeah. behaviors. Um, I think asking your kid what their stress levels are, or for example, um, if your child has a test coming up and they're nervous about it and they're kind of moody and they're snapping at you for a couple of days before, and then after they take the test, things kind of release and it goes back to normal, totally normal. Um, if your child is always nervous about the next thing that is coming, whether it's a test or a performance or a game, um, and there's no really let up to that, then that might be something that needs looking at a little deeper. Well, everyone's going to have struggles at some point in their life. But then yeah. what do you do? What my parents did when I was 11, um, they noticed that I was withdrawing socially. They noticed that my grades were suffering. They noticed that I was moody and sad all the time. I was having a lot of conflict with my mom and with my peers. Um, and they had me assessed. So they called mental health professionals. They talked to school staff um, and they had me assessed to see what was going on. And Looking back, um, I'm glad they did because uh, research shows that early intervention, the earlier the intervention, the earlier people who are experts get involved, the better the outcomes. So I'm lucky. But at the same time, when I was 11, I did not like being assessed. I did not like being tested. I didn't like being called out of class and um, you know having all these questionnaires and quizzes and all of that. Um, it made me feel like there was something more wrong with me. So it's kind of a catch 22 in that way. Um, it's okay. I think if your child doesn't like the process of getting assessed, um, I do think being a child who was fully assessed um, later in life, I'm thankful for it because um, it gave me some tools and it gave me more a beginning of literacy about myself and my struggles. Yeah, I think just having like a name to it and understanding it is helpful. Yeah. I remember my parents sending me to therapy as a teenager and it just really did not connect with me. Like I was just sort of like felt like I almost had to double down on being sort of blah when mm -hmm. I was there. And um, I don't know, not every kid connects with therapy, but there's other coping tools out there. Yeah, I I. I 
did connect with my therapist. I've been seeing her ever since I was 11. Um, she's still my therapist. So um, I feel really fortunate about that. Um, but yeah, I can totally see how some kids might, uh, yeah, sort of double down on those behaviors. Um, and I do remember being a kid and going to therapy at 11 and sort of not trusting the situation, wondering like, is she on their side or my side? I remember feeling a little bit worried about that. Um, so there are other tools. Um, we had a lovely family doctor um, and she helped talk to my family about medication options. Um, that's a whole nother field, um, but that is a tool that I use now, medication that really helps me. Um, and there's a long story there. Um, there are also um, ways that you can change, you know, teach your kid coping skills. Um, so one thing that my parents did is they got me involved in hobbies that I really liked. So I was a musical kid. I loved theater. I loved acting, even though it caused me a certain amount of anxiety, of course, you know, am I going to be late on stage? Do I know all my lines right? Um, my parents were really good about getting me involved in those extracurricular activities that I really loved. So they kept me busy. They kept me engaged. Um, and to a certain extent, they, they followed my lead to see what it was that I liked what was my element yeah and just trying things out yeah a lot of this it's just getting me thinking like when I was a teenager and I was very into rapping and performing and I would travel and like do shows on the weekends and during the week you know sometimes I'd feel depressed but having that spark and something to be interested in that made like such a difference to me yeah it's like even if I was feeling down, I was always down to like, go drive a half hour and play a show or something. Totally. I remember every year the spring musical in high school was like my most busy time of year, but also one of my most uh, good mental health times of year. And it, it didn't make sense to me because I was working, you know, I was up at 6.30 a.m. and I was going to school and then going to rehearsals and ending late in the evening. So I knew like I should be more stressed because I don't have as much time to do homework, but I actually felt less stressed. I had less mood swings and less, you know, fighting with my parents. Um, and I felt happier. Um, and that's because I was fully engaged with something that I loved. Well, I think the other piece in this is there's a community around those things too. And, you know, we were talking the other day that isolation and community, like isolation equals depression, community equals feeling better. Absolutely. Loneliness is a huge issue. And um, I feel really passionate about loneliness. Um, I have learned recently that Gen Z is the most reports being the most lonely generation um, compared to all other alive generations right now. Um, yeah, theater was magical because of community for sure. And other things like getting to be creatively expressive, but it was that camaraderie that you had and being friends and being connected with people who you wouldn't otherwise be connected with in theater. That was so, so powerful for me. Um, and I didn't have to be a social butterfly as long as I was there. I was part of the group, which was awesome because I was not necessarily a social butterfly. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, the, op the opposite of isolation obviously is community. Tons of research shows that all types of mental health diagnoses, um, including even addiction or dual diagnosis can get better in community. Um, so I think that's so important. And I know that if I was a parent, I'm not, um, I would do as much as possible to get my child involved in community and spending time around their peers, especially. Um, that was really, really powerful for me. Yeah, well, and trying different things out. I think the challenge is when you're depressed, you don't always want to start doing things. Like sometimes getting something started is the hardest part of it. Totally. It's a catch-22. Um, it's such a cruel aspect of depression and anxiety um, that anxiety creates those avoidance behaviors that you don't want to go out. You don't want to be in that social situation when that might be the thing that's going to actually help you the most. Um, for me, taking baby steps toward those social situations um, and always giving myself the choice to turn around if I needed to, rather than sort of white knuckling it through. That has been one of the most helpful coping skills for me with um, trying to be connected, trying to get out, trying to be social. Um, and uh, that was helpful when I was younger as well. Um, I don't think that I had the self-leadership yet to sort of say, hey, you can turn around whenever you want, so you might as well try. Um, mm -hmm. But I have developed that now, um, and I'm, I'm still working on it, but um, I'm yeah. happy to not be a teen anymore. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I'm enjoying adulthood in yeah. general. You know, yeah. It's tough, but I'm enjoying it. There's trade-offs for sure, but mm -hmm. yeah. Well, so you're around teenagers all the time. You're working with them. Are, are you learning anything interesting or getting interesting feedback from them? Or what are some of your takeaways from all this? Uh, teenagers, I'm really, really impressed with teenagers. I think that teenagers and young adults and um, people in middle school, even if they're not quite teens yet, are so cool. Um, going into schools, um, I do these presentations called Ending the Silence Presentations um, with NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, where we go in free of charge to high schools and middle schools and give a 50-minute presentation, that's five zero minutes, um, about mental health um, and mental health literacy, um, looking for warning signs, coping skills, uh, suicide awareness. It covers a lot. Um, and even if teens don't look like they're paying attention, at the end of the presentation, they will ask the most thoughtful, soulful questions. Um, and, and they show a lot of amazing resilience and self-awareness. Um, I just think teens are super cool. I'm, I'm a fan. I think that's a good point. Like they don't always, teenagers don't always look like they're paying attention. They're not always the most emotive, mm -hmm. but then, they're picking up on things like they're very aware. Mm -hmm. So well, I think there's a lot of great takeaways from this for parents out there. And I just, I appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Eliana. The more we talk about these issues, the better. Let's end the stigma. This has been the Parental Compass by Family Education and Support Services. I'm Bobby Williams. We'll see you next week. Peace.